This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moya Lady McLean, and tonight we have a rare treat for you. We're being joined by James Meadway. Hello. Hi, Moya. How are you? Hello. I'm very well now that you're here. A lot of meaty economic stories up today and more on those now. So we'll be talking about the reaction to Rishi Sunak abandoning those net zero climate commitments. The Bank of England has also decided to hold interest rates where they are. What does that mean for you? We'll let you know. And some fantastic news about public transport in Manchester. Let's go to our first story. Rupert Murdoch has quit as head of Fox and News Corp. In a note to employees, the 92-year-old Murdoch said this. Our companies are in robust health, as am I. We have every reason to be optimistic about the coming years. I certainly am and plan to be here to participate in them. But the battle for the freedom of speech and ultimately the freedom of thought has never been more intense. We've heard that statement was issued straight from his cryogenic chamber. Control of the two mega corporations will now be handed to Murdoch's son, Lachlan. In his resignation letter, Rupert Murdoch speaks about his own father saying this. My father firmly believed in freedom and Lachlan is absolutely committed to the cause. Self-serving bureaucracies are seeking to silence those who would question their provenance and purpose. Elites have open contempt for those who are not members of their rarefied class. Most of the media in it is in cahoots with those elites, peddling political narratives rather than pursuing the truth. It's hard to get through that without laughing. Responding to those claims on Sky was someone who worked very closely with Murdoch for many years, former editor of The Sun, Kelvin McKenzie. I quite like Rupert, right? I quite like Rupert, but that is a load of old cobblers. I mean, he is is part of the the elite. You know, his life is all uh, private jets and making prime ministers and kings and queens and, and famous people. And the idea that he's an outsider is not true. In fact, he said to me when he when when he went to pursue his ambitions in the U.S., uh, he said that I've been an outsider in Australia and I've been an outsider in the United Kingdom. I'm determined to be an insider in the United States. And actually, that is the truth of the matter. He's gone nuts. He's gone nuts. Uh, you know, he he is at the top of a he's at the top of a media pile. A fantastic brilliant, hardworking businessman, and not a bad guy. Of course, he doesn't think that Murdoch is a bad guy. Mackenzie's moral compass isn't exactly due north. This is the man who, after all, edited the Sun's infamous 1989 front cover, which falsely accused Liverpool fans of pickpocketing and beating up first responders in the wake of the Hillsborough Stadium crush. And even if he is right about his former boss being the most elite of all elites... Mackenzie was also asked about how things might change under Lachlan Murdoch's leadership, and he said this. He doesn't come to London very much, by the way, uh, Lachlan, so that's bad news. So if uh, probably good news for Sky News, but uh, uh, Talk TV, uh, she'll be anybody working there should start polishing up their CVs, and anybody at Times Radio should start buying a tent to pitch outside um, outside Centre Pluses, I should think, in their neighbourhood. Um, so uh, there will be change. The Sun will cease being a, a, a paper product within the next couple of years. Uh, you know, in a you know in a major way, it'll still be a successful digital product. The Times will still be massively successful. What's interesting about that and uh, Mackenzie's assessment is that Talk TV presenter Richard Tice has, as we were about to go on air, announced that he will be leaving Talk TV with immediate effect and heading over to GB News. So maybe Mackenzie isn't too far off there. James, do you agree with Mackenzie's analysis of what this means for the Murdoch titles? Will this be the end of the sun as we know it all? Will then a member of the family taking over mean they continue on just fine. Well, I'm kind of loath to agree with uh, Kelvin McKenzie, although he's spot on in, in calling Rupert Murdoch a, a fully paid up and handsomely rewarded and then some uh, member of the global elite. I mean, uh, amongst even amongst that global elite, he stands out. But in terms of 
what's happening with his media empire. Look, there's a line in Murdoch's statement, you know, my, my corporations are in good health and so am I. I don't want to speculate about him saying he's insisting he's in good health. But the corporations themselves, I mean, profits are well down at News Corp, down massively over the last year on lost advertising revenue. Fox News in the US is facing uh, still a series of lawsuits and made a loss last year in the back of one of these lawsuits coming out of uh, the events of January the 6th and, and the election in 2020. Um, it faces further lawsuits for his various uh, newspapers, high profile one coming up in, I think, January next year with uh, Prince Harry and Hugh Grant both suing uh, these companies. And as, as Calvin McKenzie hinted, the, this isn't just about, you know, the, the, these newspapers in particular are suffering. The entire media industry is getting shaken up and has Murdoch's mighty empire built up now over many decades been able to adapt itself fully to that? Well, not necessarily. Lachlan, from what we know, is someone very much aligned with his father's view of the world. So in terms of the content and where politically these things go, probably not too many changes here. But in terms of whether these institutions can survive, it's not necessarily the case that swapping around this very elderly uh, overseer, this somewhat dictatorial overseer of the empire is necessarily going to keep the thing on the road for the uh, forevermore. Now, News Corp and other media outlets might be beholden to a billionaire owner, but we're pretty happy to say that here at Navarra Media Towers, that is not the case and never will be. That is because we are instead funded by you, our audience. And a big thank you to our monthly supporters who back us each and every month and make Navarra Media possible. Right now, though, we're gearing up for 2024. It's going to be a bumper year with big elections incoming. But to be ready for next year, to the scope for what we want to do, we need 5,000 of you to join our regular supporters and back people-powered media. So head to navaramedia.com slash support and give one hour's wage a month or whatever you can afford. That link is in the description below. Let's move on to our next story. Rishi Sunak today had the task of defending his decision to drop a slew of climate commitments. He's postponed bans on new petrol and diesel vehicles as well as on new oil boilers. The Prime Minister appeared on Radio 4's Today programme this morning to justify this shift in gear. We're absolutely not slowing down efforts to combat climate change. I'm very proud of our country's leadership. We've decarbonised faster than any other major economy in the G7, not a fact you hear reported that often. Our targets for to continue decarbonising through to 2030, again, more ambitious than pretty much any other major economy in the world. And I think those targets are right, because I passionately do want to make sure that our country gets to net zero. That's the right thing to do. You can't look at the events that have happened over the summer, whether it's in Libya, whether it's in Europe, and not see that climate change is real and we have an obligation to reduce our emissions. But I also believe, as I think Margaret Thatcher would have agreed with as well, that it's not right to just assert a, a headline, chase the short-term popularity that that might give without a clear and deliverable plan for how to get there. And that's what I set out yesterday, because I think for too long in this debate, there hasn't been enough honesty, enough transparency with the country about what's involved. I wanted to change that. Take a shot every time Rishi Sunak needlessly invokes Margaret Thatcher. It's worth just pausing, though, on that claim about the G7. It's true that Britain has decarbonised faster than any other G7 countries. But that came about as a result of Thatcherite policies aimed at crushing coal miners while opening up the North Sea to oil and gas business. Most of our success was a result of switching from coal to gas-generated electricity throughout the 1990s, a switch made unfortunately easier by anti-union and free market policies. Largely, it was a lucky accident that that transition coincided with climate demands and Thatcher herself, at the peak of her powers, warned of the insidious danger climate change posed, although she did start to talk a little bit about climate change dogma towards the most demented part of her life at the end. Uh, today, the largest source of Britain's carbon emissions is transport. The second largest is heating buildings. Coincidentally, those are exactly the areas where Sunak has rolled back. And many car manufacturers have actually expressed dismay at the shifting of the goalposts. That was something Sunak was asked about. Some of them have contacted us and they've said, look, what we're worried about is there won't be an incentive to buy new cars and vans now. Uh, and the Can fear I... is, the fear they have and they're saying to us is that if 
consumers say, hmm, let's leave it a few years, manufacturers will not have the incentive to invest. Well, that's, that's an easy thing to rebut, because if you look at our target of 2035, it's completely aligned with pretty much every other major economy. France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Australia, Canada, California, New York, Massachusetts, Sweden. So in an industry that is global and integrated, it's very hard to argue that somehow you know, we'll be at a disadvantage when we're aligning our date with that of pretty much every other uh, major other country. What, that we, not what this that government said a couple of years ago. Well, Another topic that came up is Sunak's changes around boilers. A big change on boilers, it seems to me, is that it will be possible still to buy and install a new gas boiler right up till 2035 now. That's the change. That means those boilers, given the lifetime of boilers, may well still be in operation in 2050. Are you saying that this country can deliver its net zero commitments when it still has gas boilers operating in 2050? Yeah, well, so the typical life of a boiler is about 15 years, which is why 2035 is, is the right date. And look, I'm clear with people, if you believe in net zero then we will have to make changes. I'm not hiding from that. That wouldn't be being honest with people. So both in the in the cars and vans that we drive and how we heat our homes, over time, to deliver net zero, those things have to change. So what Sunak is saying there is that by 2050, the exact net zero deadline, we could have huge numbers of people only just moving away from gas boilers, even more if they haven't got them serviced in time. That would mean large carbon emissions potentially continuing up to the very last moment. It may be the letter of the net zero law, but it definitely isn't the spirit. And one of the government's key arguments for changing policy is that it protects ordinary people, like you or me, from the cost of net zero targets. That's how Business Secretary Kemi Badenoch defended the changes on BBC Breakfast. It's one thing having a target, that 2050 target, but if we don't have the tools to reach it, what is the point of that target? Uh, well, my response to them would be that the tools which they are pushing, which people can't afford, aren't going to get to that target either. If people can't afford to do things, then they're not going to be able to make those changes. The, the, the sort of policies that the Green Party is pushing would mean that nobody would be driving and nobody would be heating their houses. Yeah, you can get to net zero that way, but that would be a bonkers way to do it. And we are not supporting that. We're going to do this in a way that is fair and proportionate and that has the consent of the British people. Maybe we should go bonkers. It's worth noting that the Tories did have the consent of the British people, not that they've particularly shown much interest in that when it suits them, but they did win an 80-seat majority off the back of a manifesto that had net zero as a key, and by then, legally binding target. Of course, it's a decision, a political decision, to burden ordinary people with the cost in the first place. It's also a decision that's prov providing very useful cover for the Tories. In response to the changes, former Tory Environment Minister Zach Goldsmith posted this. Around the world, one of the few areas where the UK really is looked up to is on climate and the environment. Today, Sunak is dismantling that credibility, not by accident, but by choice, he said. His short stint as PM will be remembered as the moment the UK turned its back on the world and on future generations. A moment of shame. Goldsmith also said, quote, and this is pretty big for a committed conservative who was very recently in government, we need an election now. On LBC, Goldsmith's comments were put to Business Secretary Kemi Badenoch. Rishi Sunak's, and I now quote, short stint as PM will be remembered as the moment the UK turned its back on the world and on future generations. A moment of shame. So, the donors don't like it, some of the car industry don't like it, even your own members don't like it, Kemi Badenoch. Uh, well, I disagree. Not everybody well, has the kind of money that they're to go. No, 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 Nick, 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 let me finish, comments. please. Nick, let me finish. You go have ahead. chosen You have chosen negative comments. There are well, lots of Conservative MPs who are speaking very positively about this. So you're only giving one view. Zach Goldsmith is someone who cares very much about the environment. He is a friend of mine. But the fact is, he has way more money than pretty much everyone in the UK. This is not how we make decisions. We need to make decisions based on what the facts are. So, you're implying because Lord Goldsmith is very rich, he's possibly out of touch with ordinary people. I remind you 
at the last Sunday Times Rich List, Rishi Sunak was the 222nd richest man in this country. Mm. So he's completely out of touch as well because he, has, no, he enjoys, no, I, no, he enjoys similar not, wealth to Lord Goldsmith. Uh, yes, but they're doing quite different things. The point I'm making is that Zach Goldsmith, Goldsmith is, is one rich. person who has one opinion. He is a friend because of mine. I've had arguments with him about this. But the key thing, Nick, is that you can't cherry pick comments and say they're reflective of the entire Conservative Party. You know, Kemi Badenoch's uh, way of judging whether you're out of touch or not. Do you agree with Kemi Badenoch? But she is right on one thing. The policy change does have the support of at least some of the parliamentary Conservative Party. There's been a frenzy of praise for the Prime Minister in a Tory MP's WhatsApp group, according to the I newspaper. No doubt they're sensing the kind of wedge issue that might change the electoral prospects. Hint, hints, Uxbridge and Ulez, at least that's the narrative that's been embedded in our political discourse. But it's also an opportunity that a canny Labour Party, so not the one we have, could take advantage of. According to an opinion poll, most people support net zero, but support it less when the, when the impact is on their personal finances and is perceived to be greater. And according to YouGov polling conducted before Sunak's announcement, 45% of the country thought the government's plans weren't enough to meet net zero 2050. Just 23% thought they were either enough or more than enough. That is an open invitation for the Labour Party to win the wedge by sticking to our climate targets but reducing the personal cost of it to the public. James, how could the Labour Party potentially reduce the cost of these climate targets to the public? Well, you do the one thing that Labour is now insisting that it won't do, which is that you start to address the very dramatic inequalities of wealth in, in Britain. Uh, if you go back a few years, the, the Warwick and LSE um, Wealth Tax Commission uh, found that if you taxed the top uh, millionaire households in the country, just 1% of their wealth, you raised £260 billion. They suggested this is a, a one-off tax that they could spread over a few years to pay. That's easily enough to pay for a great big chunk of the kind of changes you need of installing new boilers, of uh, building you know, wind farms, of uh, overhauling the national grid, of all the big investments that need to, to take place here. So th there are ways to make this happen. The problem for the Labour Party, and this is what the Tories are setting up, and, and by the way, it's, it's bad, you know, it's bad in terms of British capitalism to, to be doing this. That's why you have all these car manufacturers lining up to say, this is a bad idea, don't do it. It's why you have pro-business Tory MPs saying, it's a bad idea, don't do it. It's kind of bad for British capitalism, but they know very well that if they can start to make this look like big costs, as they try to do arguably successfully around you, Liz, they can start to push back on what Labour are arguing and claw back on some of that enormous unpopularity they're currently facing. Let's move on to our next story, where it's not getting any less hot for Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak's bonfire of net zero policies contained some interesting measures that many people had never heard of. These were the so-called proposals that the Prime Minister said he is scrapping. Sunak posted this after his Downing Street speech on Wednesday. We're stopping heavy-handed measures, taxes on eating meat, new taxes to discourage flying, sorting your rubbish into seven different bins, compulsory car sharing, expensive insulation upgrades. One problem, none of these are actual government policies. Former Environment Secretary George Eustace was asked about the oppressive measures we've all been spared while he was on Channel 4 News. Rishi Sunak claimed he'd cancelled a load of policies that I must have just been asleep for. I mean, wh when did they announce that we were all going to have to have seven bins and that they were going to tax meat? Well, there have been proposals from um, well a number of reports. So there was a Henry Dimbleby report that said we... No, when did uh, the government say it was going to do it? The government hasn't, but the Climate Change Committee has. And so the government, and including in my time, was endlessly assailed by the Climate Change Committee to do things, you know, some of which actually... The Climate Change Committee is independent of government. Richard of course Sunak it is, claims yes. that he cancelled government plans. Is he just making stuff up? Well, there I mean, when was it ever plans. a government no, plan? No, look, look, I think I can forgive all politicians a bit of rhetoric. There weren't government oh, plans. Oh, so it was for me. nonsense then? It was just rhetoric? No, it is not nonsense. But well, there rhetoric never, is not true on that. And on Good Morning Britain, Business Secretary Kami Badnock, who was out on the media rounds, was also asked about Sunak's brave fight against this non existent policy. Why did he come out and say that he's now going to scrap a meat tax, that nobody should have to have seven bins? 
Was there ever a policy, government policy to impose a meat tax? What was he so, actually so, scrapping so these, there? These were proposals that had come out from the Committee uh, uh, on Climate Change. So we have a committee called the CCC, mm -hmm. which informs almost all of the policy that comes into, into reality. But it In was fact, one officials... of many policies that didn't go ahead. So, no, no, you know... no, no, no. These, these were policies that were due to, these were proposals that were due to come in in order for us to meet future carbon budgets. So, oh, I, so I, you were I... going to impose a meat tax? as these, these were, policy? Well, no, we're not going to do that, but this was advice which we were given. On the previous show that I was on, people were criticising us for not following the Climate Change uh, Committee's advice. The seven bins uh, was in the Environment Act 2021. So there are lots of bits uh, of policy which we're looking at again, and we just don't think that the public so will be able to wear these So it was actually seven things. bins. I thought it was seven streams of recycling. Seven I don't streams think... of bins, seven streams, seven bins. It well, was, it is that a is difference. something that is, uh, well, is either difference. way, either way, we're scrapping it, and it was in the um, Environment Act 2021. Okay. Seven streams, seven bins, potato, potato. Uh, bad enough, of course, that the energy might have picked up on this, says it's in the Environment Act. It isn't. That is something that Rishi Sunak eventually was forced to make clear in this painful exchange on the Today programme. Where was this proposal for the government to put a tax on meat? that you had to scrap with such a fanfare? Yeah, there were a range of things that have been proposed by lots of different people in order for us to meet... Well, where was the our, proposal for a tax well, on meat? you the Committee for Climate Change earlier. I mean, actually, if you look in their reports, they talked uh, very specifically about saying it's particularly important that we see an accelerated shift, in their words, in our diets away from meat and dairy. Well, I've just spoken they, to them, I've just interviewed them, uh, and they well, said you, there is no mention of a tax on meat in any of their reports. If you, if you look at their report, it talks about an accelerated shift away from dairy and meat. It mm, says, it's not a tax on meat. It said, well, it said that uh, diets will need to shift away. It also says we'd have to implement measures to bring that about. So they didn't propose uh, a tax on meat. Where it, was the it, proposal for to... a compulsory car sharing that you say you scrapped? Again, you can, if you look in their report, it will talk very clearly about what they could describe as ride-sharing solutions, otherwise known as exactly what I was saying. It's and different they talk from about, compulsory car sharing uh, well, What it, what it then, then says euphemistically is one would need to consider demand-side measures to bring that about, which are otherwise known as compulsion or taxes. But elsewhere, actually, they're very open that taxes should be used to send a signal on things like reducing travel demand or the amount that people uh, And people was drive. the government considering forcing people to have seven bins? Another proposal you said you've scrapped? Yeah, so if you, look in, if you look in the Environment Act and the associated consultations that were in place around 2021 from memory. Um, there's a very clear uh, statement in there about moving to consistent collection for recycling, the clear implication of which is seven bins and you can go through and again, that's what people have raised concerns with and that's what the policy work was looking but at. Hold but, on uh, just a on. second. No, 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 hold on a second, Prime Minister. You stand up with the authority of Prime Minister in this building and you say you're scrapping a series of proposals. And when I ask you about them, you say, oh, somebody considered and it was in the appendix of this document. There's nothing to be scrapped. James, it seems pretty clear that Rishi Sunak's Tories are circling the plug hole. But what I want to know is, will this net zero rollback be washed away with them? Or will it stay in our proverbial political sink for a likely incoming Labour government? I think this is uh, exactly the biggest problem with this thing. The, the, look, I mean, I don't think the Tories are going to win the next election. It's really hard to, to see that happening. But them backing away from past commitments eases the pressure on Labour to deliver when it's in office. It makes life easier for the next Labour government because they don't have to do as much anymore to be somewhat better than Conservatives. And that's basically what they've set up here. And, and they will take that. We know they'll take that because everything that this Labour leadership has been doing is lining up as far as possible that they can do as little as possible once they get into office. They do not want that pressure applied. So I think people like Green New Deal rising, going out and making sure that they go and, you know, heckle sometimes Keir Starmer and protest and all the rest of it, that's an important part of getting this future Labour government to actually take the action that's needed rather than what they can get away with because the Tories are making life easier for them right now. Let's move on to our next story. It is Sociological Christmas. The annual British Social Attitude Survey dropped today. It's a study conducted by the National Centre for Social Research that reports the broad public opinion on a range of topics. Findings are based on in-depth interviews with over 3,000 respondents. 2023 is the 40th year of the study, and the headline news is that Brits have undergone a, quote, near revolution in their attitudes to sex, relationships, abortion and family structures. 
This is from the Guardian summary. Examples of the ascendancy of liberal views include attitudes towards same-sex relationships. 50% of respondents said they were always wrong in 1983, compared with just 9% in 2022, and a woman's right to choose an abortion, supported by 76% now, against 37% when the question was first asked 40 years ago. The thawing of social conservatism in these areas is also borne out in the acceptance of family forms other than the nuclear family. 50% of people now think single parents are just as competent at bringing up children as two parents are. Shout out to my mother. This is compared to 35% of people in 1994. But there is one area where liberal attitudes have reversed. Support for transgender people. Here's a depressing finding from the survey. The proportion of people who characterize themselves as, quote, not at all prejudiced against people who are transgender has fallen from 82% to 64% since 2019. Bleak. Similarly, the proportion of people that think that transgender people should be able to change their biological sex on their birth certificate has dropped by 23%. In 2019, that was a majority opinion. Now only 30% support it. Any wonder given the anti-trans panic that is ripping through our media and political discourse. 2022 research by an anonymous trans rights campaigner working under the internet handle Minimum found that UK media has published an average of 154 articles on trans issues every single month over the past seven years. And recent analysis by Navarra Media contributor Al Folan dug into the output of trans-related stories published by the UK's most-read newspaper, the Daily Mail. Folan compared the number of articles related to trans people that the Daily Mail published in every January from 2013 to now. In January 2013, there were just six articles published relating to trans people. In 2023, that number rose by a whopping 1,017%. It's giving obsessed. And of those 11,000% articles published in January 2023, 87% of them could reasonably be categorised as negative. In January 2013, none of the six articles could be categorised as such by the same metrics. But as Britain moves towards small-c social conservatism when it comes to gender identity, the cost-of-living crisis seems to have pushed public opinion to the left on economics. It's the 1930s all over again, because support for state intervention to control prices is at a record high. According to the BSA survey, the number of people who think the government should be definitely responsible for keeping prices under control, has more than doubled from 31% in 2006 to 68% now. Meanwhile, 53%, again, majority opinion, believe the government should be responsible for reducing income differences between rich and poor. Also, the highest that proportion has ever been. And finally, 63% of people think, quote, the government should be providing industry with the help it needs to grow. This is, you guessed it, a record high. In 2006, that number was just 27%. James, large majority who supports state intervention with controlling prices sounds like a price cap mandate to me. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can see it not just in the British Social Attitude Survey, which is, this, you know, as you say, this comprehensive, very long-running study of what people think and a whole load of issues. You can just see it on the opinion polling on a, a sort of week-by-week, month-by-month basis. The, the people out there don't accept this basically neoliberal idea that you should just allow the free market to always decide how much things cost and who gets it always, whatever that thing is, whether it's the gas you need to, to heat your house, whether it's the electricity you need to keep the lights on, whether it's essential food, whether it's petrol in your car, all that sort of thing. People don't accept that. And they've never really accepted that. Now, what's really striking here is two things. One is that the crisis and it is a crisis, cost of living crisis that we're going through now is clearly moving people towards, broadly speaking, the economic left. That's happened. The other bit, the longer term bit, if you go back further in the British Social Attitude Survey in particular, is that despite the fact that for decades we've had a press run by Rupert Murdoch to a significant extent and a media system in general and governments all the time 
that have tried to push versions of that neoliberal thinking that, you know, you shouldn't worry about inequality, that you can't tax the rich, you can't spend more money in public services, you can't have government intervention to protect people in any meaningful way. That's been the consistent ideology of the dominant media for a very long period of time. And governments have also pushed this. Despite all of that, you find that people are still very committed to some basic social democratic ideas about actually we can do something about inequality. It's bad to have too much of it. And government should be there to look out for ordinary people and not just, you know, uh, help out its wealthy mates, people like Rupert Murdoch. That's really striking. And actually, should we should take some heart from the fact that in response to this crisis, that long running thing in the British Social Attitude Survey is becoming even more apparent. This is the time to make those left arguments about how we could run the economy better than we are doing. One thing that you said there and also that I think is really interesting in this survey is that 53% of people believe the government should be responsible for reducing income differences. And as you say, this is, you know, ongoing commitment to social democratic uh, ideology. Is this also mean, is this UBI territory? Is this a mandate for UBI? The UBI is a really interesting one because you saw the support for it um, really shot up during the pandemic, when suddenly people were confronted by this this very sort of extreme set of circumstances and what in terms of what was going on, and recognised the need to provide a kind of comprehensive protection, and that I think was what really gave a push to to that particular argument. I think if you look at the, I don't think the social attitude survey asked directly about that. They don't ask directly often on specific policies. But if you take the general sense that some kind of redistribution is needed, then what you can get to with UBI, particularly if you then line it up with saying, okay, we're going to have a proper wealth tax, is what that redistribution starts to look like and what a comprehensive, proper form of government protection starts to look like for people. We often, I think probably too often, because we get battered by, well, it's by the sun, by the Daily Mail, by this government that we have. We get battered by the idea that basically if you think inequality is bad, if you think we should tax the rich, you're in a tiny, ridiculous minority and no one agrees with you. And actually, if you go and look at the real social scientific evidence on how people in Britain think, that isn't true at all. It's very unfortunate that we have a media system that works like this, that we have a government that thinks like this. And it's particularly unfortunate that we don't have a Labour Party right now that doesn't pick up on some of this stuff. But people should have some confidence that if they start saying, actually, we can tax the rich, we can live in a more equal society, we don't have to accept this nonsense that we're kind of spoon fed, a lot of people, an increasing number of people are going to agree with them. Surely Labour should be jumping on this. And if they don't, Will the populist right in Britain, because right now it seems like, you know, you've got the conservatives who are so ideologically opposed to these sort of left wing economic policies. Boris Johnson's economic approach was sort of widely reviled within the party as the most liberal thing about him. So they're not doing it yet. But will a more canny populist right do it the same way, for example, in Poland, the far-right nationalists are p- picking up. I think that's right. I think this is this is where the drift of the thing was going. I mean, a lot of people kind of took took the piss out of it, but the National Conservatism Conference, if people remember a couple of months ago, I mean, oh, it was kind of ridiculous, but you could see that line of thinking uh, uh, coming through there. Uh, and you can see also, although, you know, this is a kind of uneasy alliance with the people who are real sort of free marketeers lurking around on the on the Tory right. You know, Liz Trust is not someone who signs up to the idea that let's have big government intervention. They can probably try and find a way to jam these things together. I mean, it was Trust, who is Prime Minister, introduced the energy price guarantee. Initially, it was going to cost £150 billion to provide actually not very good, but some protection to uh, price rises for domestic energy bills. So these people will, I think, try and move in that direction. And if Labour's going to sit there, and and this is even if we think Starmer's going to be a super great prime minister, I think this is going to be a government that's going to run immediately into a series of crises. The big ones in the public services, which are run down. There are the ecological crises, which are now becoming a recurrent feature of how we live our lives. There's a likelihood of further financial uh, disasters of various sorts. There's geopolitical tensions in the rest of the world. It's going to run into problems. And that's when the populist right, I, I think, will learn to move in and will move in rapidly if Labour isn't there getting that space and saying how they're going to make society fairer in the face of all these challenges. Let's go on to our next story. The Bank of England has announced that interest rates won't rise this month. Way, But they won't fall either. Boo. 
The bank has raised interest rates every time they've met since November 2021. It's a fun little thing for them now. The rate will now stay at 5.25%, which is still the highest it's been since the 2008 financial crash. It wasn't an easy decision, though. Four out of the bank's nine-member monetary policy committee voted to raise the cost of borrowing. So only the vote squeaks through by one. The decision came on the back of an improved inflationary outlook. In August, inflation fell slightly to 6.7%. There's still a hell of a long way to go to the bank's 2% target, and food inflation is still very, very high, even higher if you shop at my local grocers who inflate it by about 25%, standing at 13.6% for the rest of the country. James, our economist on the ground, can you explain what this latest decision means for the general public? It means that at least in terms of how much it might cost to, to borrow money. So if you've got a mortgage, variable rate mortgage, or you're getting a loan of some sort, or maybe you've got a credit card that's attached to base rate, something like this, it means that won't get any more expensive for this month at least. And looking further ahead from what uh, the governor of the Bank of England was saying and what the Monetary Policy Committee is saying, it might also be the case that this is around about the time where they start maybe to bring down uh, interest rates again. Now, so, so in other words, things are bad, but they may be slightly less bad than they were in the future in terms of interest rates. That's what it says. Now, I have to say that this is taking a relatively optimistic view of the future. I think when the Bank of England says um, the big price surge over the last sort of year or so, war in Ukraine, the end of the pandemic, these are the two big things here. That's kind of started starting to wash out now. That's true, but that doesn't mean that things like, for instance, the rising price of oil, which turns into a rising price of petrol, which turns into a rising price of transport, driven really by, by OPEC cutting production of oil as a deliberate attempt to push up um, the price of oil globally, that's going to start feeding in. If you've got broader sort of geopolitical tensions, if you've got disputes over who is selling grain, who is selling wheat, if you've got people banning exports of, of different produce, if you've got lots of speculation taking place on trading in food, all of these things start to add up into really quite high prices. And you did point out rightly that food inflation is still really high. This is the thing to watch out for, by the way, because we may well, particularly from the government, get a lot of kind of excitable chat about inflation's now coming down. Isn't that great? That doesn't mean you're get, going to be better off and things are going to be cheaper. It means things are getting more expensive less quickly than they were, right? So you're still being made worse off. That If you are not receiving a pay rise that matches that rate of inflation in real terms, you're still worse off. So broadly speaking, this isn't like some great hip, hip hooray saying maybe in terms of interest rates, things are not going to be quite as bad as they could have been uh, or look like they were going to be a few months ago. But this is hardly a great situation. Big underlying thing, by the way, here is the whole thing about raising interest rates to try and what deal with the effects of a pandemic or, or, or somehow uh, cut the price of gas that you're buying from Qatar. This is just rubbish. None, none of these things worked. The fact that prices or rather inflation is now coming down is not to do with the Bank of England putting up interest rates. That's just the thing it does kind of because it has to look like it's doing something in the first instance. It's got nothing really to do with them. We shouldn't have seen interest rates go up this high. If they're going to come down now, fine, but it was a mistake to do it in the first place. Do you think the bank, as some people have said, is trying to drive the UK into recession? If so, why? Who or what is this financial system geared towards protecting with these high interest rates? Basically, yes, that's that's the way that interest rates are, are supposed to to work. It, it, the idea here is, and, and it's like, when you try to explain it, it sort of sounds a little bit like, can this really be what they're doing? And it's like, yes, this is literally what their models tell them to do. This is how the kind of mainstream macro model works, which is if you say, okay, interest rate goes up, it's harder to borrow money, it's more expensive. That means people spend less. If they spend less, shops sell less. If shops are selling less, they'll employ fewer people. Manufacturers employ a few fewer people. Unemployment goes up. If unemployment goes up, people are going to be too scared to ask for wage rises. That means wages won't go up so much. Uh, and because we think wages are driving inflation, that means inflation will come down. Now, first of all, wages aren't driving inflation. Bank of England, it's a really nerdy thing to do. But you can dig out their blog. They've got a big piece that goes into the details on this. It's not wages driving inflation. First bit. Second bit, it's actually just kind of cruel to have a mechanism that says we're going to have a recession and more unemployment to bring wages down, which PS aren't actually driving inflation in the first place. The people who do well out of this, by the way, uh, is, are banks. 
banks are making huge profits at the minute because interest rates are high. Because lo and behold, if you're running a bank, which uh, you know you need to charge people interest, you make more money when interest rates go up. So banks are making roaring great profits at the minute. So they're doing fine out of this. There are a certain amount of you know we can present this very neutrally. Oh, it's the model that says it's yeah true, but there are also some people who do really well when interest rates go up. And if you're <laughs> running a bank, you're likely to be doing rather well out of this. The rest of us rather less well. Let's move on to our next story. Very excited about this one. A huge public transport revolution is taking place in Greater Manchester. This weekend, we'll see the rollout of the first publicly controlled bus networks in the city region since Margaret Thatcher ushered in privatisation. Over the next two years, buses within the Greater Manchester area will stop being run by competing private operators. Instead, they'll be controlled by one public body, Transport for Greater Manchester, with contracts franchised out to operators. And these contracts will contain pre-agreed route times, ticket prices, profit from this network will then be reinvested back into TFGM. This overhaul is a flagship project of Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. It's niftily called the B Network, and it could be a lasting legacy for Burnham. This map from local media outlet Manchester Mill shows the B Network rollout on Sunday. The first B Network buses will trundle into action across Bolton, Wigan, Manchester City Centre and parts of Bury and Salford. In March 2024, it will extend to Rochdale, Oldham and the surrounding areas. By January 2025, the B Network should have rolled out in the entire Greater Manchester region. Private operators, of course, have not been in favour of the changes. Transport sec giant. Uh, Stagecoach even threw up a legal challenge to just a review, in fact, in 2017 to stop the passing of legislation that would allow mayoral combined authorities to move to a franchising model. Sour grapes. Uh, of course, they wouldn't be fans given the loss of profit it poses, but they've still managed to fall in line and bid for the contracts regardless. The main obstacle now facing Burnham's B network is the need to drive up bus ridership and corresponding revenues. Bus ridership in Greater Manchester had fallen even before the pandemic. From 2010 to 2020, bus usage in the region fell by nearly 43 million journeys. However, B-Network supporters say that this is due to the impact of deregulation. If reliable joined-up bus services are provided, passengers will use them. And there's evidence to say that is true. London, which uses the same franchising system, has seen bus ridership remain consistent and actually outperform post-pandemic tube uses. I bike everywhere, but I certainly get a bus more than I get a tube. And earlier today, I spoke to Matthew Topham, a campaigner at Better Buses for Greater Manchester. I started by asking him about the benefits of taking the buses back into public control. The biggest benefit is the fact that we no longer have a system run purely in the interests of fat cat shareholders, mainly based overseas. That's that's the number one thing. But as a rollout from that, you start to unlock new benefits, like the system can be fully integrated because it's not set up as a Wild West market with competing companies. You can start to have cross-subsidy of services, so quieter routes are funded through the profits made off those really busy commuter routes. And you can also start to have that fundamental thing in a public service of accountability. The service doesn't just listen to the voices of people on a company board, it listens to the needs of local people and responds to them in designing the network. And when we're talking about this idea of being better integrated, what does that actually mean? Does it mean, you know, they can design it so that buses run in tandem with when trams are leaving in Manchester, for example, or when trains are leaving? Absolutely. So if anyone else has had the experiences I've had, you can sometimes be on a bus looking to get on to the next part of your journey. And just as your bus pulls in on time, amazingly, you can see the train pulling out of the station because the bus operator has designed the timetable to keep you riding their buses, not getting onto the fastest form of transport that could be up next. And so what we can see now is Burnham and folks in Greater Manchester designing the network so it works to get uh, the local community from door to door as quick as possible, not just to maximise the profits of these companies. How did the B Network come into being? Obviously, this is and seen as Andy Burnham's flagship policy, but as a lead campaigner on Better Buses for Manchester, I'm sure that you guys must have had some input into this as well. What has been the timeline to see the B Network realised? To be completely frank, the full timeline is 37 years since Margaret Thatcher uh, stole the operation of local buses from local people and handed it completely over to private companies. But bringing it forward a little bit, 
it's been partly a story of devolution and uh, that devolution deal coming in in Greater Manchester and a change to the law to allow public control. But actually, the campaign and the push from local people really uh, got started in um, September time of uh, 2018. And from there, uh, my predecessor, the fantastic Pascal Robinson, uh, pulled together a coalition from across the region, from across trade unions, from community voices, renters, and even, you know, religious communities like the, the Quakers all got involved and fought together to make sure that Andy Burnham knew this wasn't just uh, a policy for him to look into and then dismiss. This was something that he had to do if he was going to uh, control and, and win the respect and the support of people across Greater Manchester. What have been some of the key obstacles to see the BU network come into being, if you'll excuse the pun? I know there was a lawsuit in 2017 from Stagecoach. Anything else like that? So not only did uh, the companies uh, running the buses currently throw their toys out of the pram and try to fight to hold on to their monopolistic power in the region uh, through the courts, they fought this at every step along the way. So these companies who you can't get to work together for love and money when you want a reliable service got together in a, a group called One Bus uh, to put forward basically a disinformation campaign saying that public control was going to be unaffordable, that it was going to um, cause significant disruption, when we know that every other European country has been doing this for the last 40 years and beyond. You know, if they can all manage it okay, we know that Greater Manchester can. And yet these bus companies throughout the campaign for buses to come back into public control were fighting it tooth and nail in the press, online, uh, setting up even uh, daft Twitter accounts that they used to run. Uh, and then, as you say, finally through the courts as well. Central government funding for publicly controlled, franchised out networks like TfL and like Transport for Greater Manchester has decreased in recent years under the Conservatives. We don't know if there's a Labour government next year, whether that will be restored or not. There's a lot of hullabaloo about whether the B network will ever turn a profit. Do you think it matters whether the public service turns a profit or not? Of course, a public service's duty is to be that bedrock for the rest of our community and for the rest of the economy. And so what we need to see is it run to maximise those benefits. If we can't get people into work, if we can't get them into education, if we can't get them into healthcare, then we will all be the poorer for it. So th this idea that it has to um, uh, break even on its own is completely ludicrous because it weakens the case for all the rest of our uh, services and for the rest of the economy. But we also know from where buses are in full public ownership in the UK, places like Edinburgh, Reading, that they actually do often turn a profit uh, that can be reinvested and up in Edinburgh, that money was used to build their tram. So we know that it is likely to manage it, but we also know that it is too important to leave to the whims of that kind of market ideology. We have to fund public transport so that it works in the public interest. Let's go on to our next story. The Institute of Economic Affairs is a right-wing think tank, one of those so-called Tufton Street groups. I'm sure you know the name, the IEA, by now, sadly. Its free market evangelism and small state obsession have been beloved by such luminous figures as Liz Truss and I Crash the Economy Quasi Kartang. Its director of policy, Matthew Leash, has appeared on LBC, where fellow guest, comedian Dom Jolly, had a few difficult questions for him. Explain to me. I'm sorry. I'm really, as a comedian, I'm not a professional politician. I know nothing. What is the IEA? I don't get it. What do you do? Oh, we're don't, a think tank. Don't even go <laughs> no, I'd love to. We're a free market think tank. We You're a free, and who pays you then? We, who funds you? We're paid by, all, funded by all sorts of individuals, uh, foundations, corporates who believe in our mission. I mean, right. I mean, it, there's there's left wing think tanks, there's right wing think tanks, there's think tanks all sorts of perspectives, and we have a, a, an educational mission and, and purpose that we. This is what you're saying. It's the same thing as Liz Truss was saying yesterday. It's just she came back and just said, you know, we have the right idea but we just, you know, it wasn't done right. All these great ideas don't seem to be done right. I don't get it. Has anyone ever done it right? Has anyone ever done it right? Well, of course. I mean, uh, time and time again, we've seen throughout history as um, taxes are reduced, as we allow free trade, as we cut regulations, that people are freer and more prosperous. But I mean, the, not, the UK waffle. had an extreme period of success post the Thatcher reforms and into the 90s and 2000s. We had a much more successful open uh, economy. I mean, that, you have to say that's surely a, a relative time of prosperity that, that came out of market-based reforms. Um, you know, I can give time so and time again. Why did Liz Truss fail then? Well, Liz Truss failed for her own reasons. Liz, Liz Truss um, tried to spend a lot of money um, as well as cut taxes without doing anything on the spending side. It was irresponsible. Um, she tried to but do too much. Weren't you guys much. right behind her, though? 
I mean, let's trust is Liz Truss. I mean, there were certain things that I supported. It wasn't she your, there certain, there certain, your There were certain candidate. things like the energy price guarantee that uh, my colleagues at the well, IAEA criticised quite heavily. To be fair, the IAEA were fully heavily. behind Liz Truss. You were fully behind it, so yeah, I just don't quite understand why. Well, I don't think that's true. We were, we were behind certain ideas that we agreed with. You have to be clear, the, the implications of all this all this stuff about, you know, asking where the IAEA funding comes from is that I don't actually believe what I'm saying and that I'm just doing someone else's pudding. And I think that's actually quite That's offensive. exactly what I'm saying. No, that is, that is supremely offensive. I mean, you, okay. you might disagree with what I say. You might have completely different views. But then but, why would you I, not say who well, the reason that. why we don't say it is because of uh, basically, I'm going to be quite frank, pe people who disagree with us viciously on the internet who will go and abuse and harass people who support us. If we publish a list of our supporters, they would they would go after and, and be attacked, including, I'm sorry, by, by people like yourself who disagree with us. That's, that's why we respect the privacy of our, of our donors. The question of who funds the IA is a long-standing one in the year to March 22. The IA received £2.4 million in donations. It's reported to have received money from big tobacco who don't like people attacking them online. Uh, the alcohol industry, oil giants and the sugar industry. All of those, I'm sure you'll agree, are very vulnerable to a dogpile on Twitter. And just last year, the funding transparency organisation Who Fund You?, gave the IEA the lowest possible transparency rating. James, is the IEA's lack of transparency out of respect for the privacy of their donors? Well, I'm sure, as Matthew Leach says, he, he genuinely believes something like this. But you have to look at the actual impacts of this. If, if you if you give a large donation to a political party, that's that's a publicly declared thing. Uh, and there are all sorts of reasons why people do that. And, and they circle around mostly. It comes down to sometimes it is actually just literally out of personal beliefs. A lot of the time it is knowing full well that this gives you degrees of influence and sway and perhaps nudging what a, a government or what a government to be might be doing. That's why you do it. If you don't want that direct route, another way to try and have that sort of impact on what's happening politically is to give money to a think tank. And so then that has the advantage that you don't need to declare that you're making this donation. You can still have the impact without all this nuisance of, uh, as Matthew Lee says, nasty people being nasty about you. And this is pathetic. You want to live in, you want to live in a democracy and you want to go around whether it's you as an individual or you as a corporation want to go around trying to shape how that democracy functions, because that's really what a think tank is there to do, and what the outcomes politically might be, and the sort of discussions we have and debates we have and what policies we get, you ought to be able to come forward as a basic democratic principle and say, this is what I stand for, and this is what I believe in, and your name is next to it. Right? That just seems elementary, particularly if there's large amounts of resources uh, and the potential to have serious impact on policy, which is what a think tank ideally is supposed to give you, uh, is coming in here. So I just think it's absolutely nonsensical uh, for Matthew to talk like this. Uh, it's, there is another slight issue here, I think, that is, look, the IEA is influential on Liz Trust for sure. I mean, she's pretty much an alumnus of, of the institution in, in various different ways. Uh, likewise, Kwasi Kwarteng. But right now, I'm more worried that there are other think tanks like the Institute of Fiscal Studies that are very centrist, very sensible, always turned to as the experts on the BBC and such like, and actually have been pushing austerity for a long period of time over the last 13 years. And where's the accountability for people like this? Where's the accountability for the sensible centrist think tanks? Not the obvious people who are funded probably by tobacco and BP and God knows who else, but the people who are sitting in the middle and saying, well, actually, we must do austerity. And what happens when Labour presumably get elected next time and suddenly there's another argument about, oh, well, look at all this debt. We've got to do austerity. And suddenly the Institute of Fiscal Studies pops up. That, I think, is also a problem. And perhaps we spend a bit too long chasing around after the IEA when there's this issue that we need to deal with as well. I think that's a very salient point, James. And maybe Navarro Media needs to do the NM Guide to Think Tanks as part of its future content supported of course by the lovely people at home like yourselves watching right now remember if you want to help us meet our goal of getting 5,000 new paying supporters so that we can expand our operations to 2024 go to navara.media slash support james thank you so much for joining me tonight it's always fantastic to get an economist perspective Thank you everyone so much for watching this evening. We will be back tomorrow from 6pm for another Bonanza with Michael and Aaron. But for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.